Thank you, Pastor Brad. I have told Pastor Brad when he first came, I said, I don't mind preaching. That's kind of what pastors do. But one of the things that I really dislike is trying to pick a topic. And I said, I will fill in and preach anytime you need. Just tell me what to speak on. And so he, a couple of weeks ago, talked to me. And I, I still don't know if he was serious or if he was playing with me. But he said, I want you to preach on Obadiah. And I tried hard to stifle my, I don't know what you even call it. Because I thought to myself right away, I, I know I've read Obadiah. I mean, when you read through the scriptures, I, I know I've read over it. But I know nothing about it. And so I've given you plenty of time to find it. I hope you're still there. It, no doubt your, the spine of your Bible creaks and groans when you turn there. Um, but it's, it's found Obadiah is a minor prophet. Um, minor prophet does not mean he's less important than the major prophets. Uh, it just means that it's a short prophetic book. Uh, we have major prophets that are larger. We have minor prophets that are shorter. Uh, it's been said that the Bible is not written chronologically, but it is written or arranged. It is not arranged chronologically, but it is arranged logically. And um, Obadiah is one of those minor prophets that are lumped together in the Old Testament. I asked, around, I asked four different pastors if they had ever preached on Obadiah, and every one of them said, no, never. And uh, so I, I actually enjoyed this. I learned a lot. And uh, I trust that you will also. One of the interesting, just a little bit of history. Obadiah. We don't know who he was. <laughs> there, his name means that he is a worshiper of Yah, worshiper of Yahweh. It was a common name in ancient Israel. At least 12 other men in the Old Testament are named Obadiah. It is the smallest, the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. And Interestingly, it's one of the Old Testament books that is never mentioned or quoted in the New Testament. Jesus never refers to it. No other um, New Testament writer refers to it ever. Paul never speaks of it or quotes it. Another interesting fact about Obadiah, it's not written to the people of God. That might sound strange when I say that at first, because of course it is written to us. But... It's a prophecy that is not given to Israel. Rather, it's a prophecy that is made to Edom. Another thing we don't know is when it was written. Um, Obadiah refers to an attack on Jerusalem. Most scholars have narrowed this down to one of two attacks. Uh, Either the Philistine attack in 853 BC during the reign of Jeroboam, then that would make Obadiah a contemporary of Elisha. Or perhaps he refers to the Babylonian attack, and that would be in the year 586 B.C., making him a contemporary of Jeremiah. Some prefer the early date, some prefer the late date. I have come to the conclusion, I think it's probably the early date, the date of around 853 B.C., but I'm not going to bore you with the reasons why I believe that, and I'm certainly not going to say that anybody who disagrees with me is a heretic, because, you know, who knows? There are a lot of similarities between Obadiah and Jeremiah. Um, And it's my opinion, and that's all that it is, 
that Jeremiah was probably aware of Obadiah's prophecy, and he refers to it in his prophecy. Some scholars will use the term that they'll say, Jeremiah borrowed from Obadiah, or Obadiah borrowed from Jeremiah, as though somehow God were plagiarizing himself. I don't know how that's possible. God is the author of the scriptures, and, and if he chooses to say the same thing the same way through a different prophet, they're his words. That's his right. And um, so I just happen to believe that Jeremiah read Obadiah. That's all. And not the other way around. Now, to understand Obadiah, you have to go back to, I think, Genesis 25. You don't have to turn there, but I'm sure you know the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were very dissimilar twins. I don't know if you remember the, the 1988 movie by that name, Twins. It starred, <laughs> some of you are laughing, it starred Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was a story of a science experiment where they tried to create the perfect human. And so there was all kind of attention given to the one baby in the womb of the mother. And I don't remember how they did it, but they tried to make this baby be perfect. Unknown, unknowingly, the mother had carried twins. And so when, while one child got all the attention that was supposed to make it perfect, the other one got nothing and ended up being a reject. And one was Arnold Schwarzenegger, tall, strong, handsome, square jaw, intelligent. The other one ended up being Danny DeVito. And, of course, it was just a funny, funny movie. Um, it, I think it's sort of similar, this situation with Jacob and Esau. They were, there was a rivalry between them. They were very different. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, so I want to be careful. But I picture Jacob as being of slight build, probably very intelligent. If he was alive today, I think he would work in an office. He would dress sharply. He'd always have a fresh haircut. He'd have a Starbucks gold card for sure. Um, Jacob was favored by his mother. Esau, his brother, on the other hand, was he was an outdoorsman, and he was hairy. The scriptures do say that. I imagine him having broad shoulders, being very muscular. I picture long curly hair and a deep voice. Some guy wearing Carhartts and red wing boots and a, and a can of skull in his back pocket. He probably was a, you know, today he'd be an iron worker or he'd cut timber or something like that. That's just my imagination. But Esau had no regard for the covenant that God made with Abraham, even though he was the heir and he was to be the recipient. Jacob, on the other hand, was conniving. He was opportunistic. And he both simultaneously both bought and stole the birthright from his brother Esau. And this rivalry continued throughout the generations. In fact, for thousands and thousands of years, they were rivals, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. Now, another fact that we have to grasp before we move any further is that both of these twins bore two names. Jacob was also known as Israel, and Esau was also known as Edom. And their descendants retained those two names. Now, the book of Obadiah contains a message, as I said before, not for Israel, but for Edom. And this fact alone makes it unique. There's one other Old Testament book that is not written to 
Israel. Just curious. Does anybody know what it is? Any guesses? It was written to Nineveh. And it's the book of Nahum. So Nahum was not addressed to Israel either. And as far as I know, they're the, they're the only two only two books. So Edom is not, they're not God's covenant people. That right went to the children of Jacob. Now, Edom is the region in which the descendants of Esau settled. And so to be an Edomite is to be a descendant of Esau. It's located um, in the south of Jerusalem. So I can show you here. That area there in yellow is, is the land of Edom. So it's located south of Jerusalem, south of the Dead Sea. It spans both sides of the Dead Sea, Edom is in what is today the modern nation of Israel and also the kingdom of Jordan, the modern kingdom of Jordan. It would include the cities of Petra, that city, ancient city with the red rock-hewn temples and, and buildings and structures with narrow valleys and high mountain dwellings carved into, into the rock. I'm sure you've seen those pictures and... and um, that scene, it's quite, quite fascinating. The Edomites were proud. And they were proud because they lived high on the mountains. They lived in houses that were carved out of stone. They, they felt that their, their residence was easily defensible. They felt that they were invincible. Now, what exactly happened here in Obadiah? Well, Israel was attacked by a foreign power. Again, we don't know exactly who, since we don't know when this book was written. I believe that it was most likely the events described in 2 Chronicles 21 and 2 Kings chapter 8. And that's quite fascinating because that's the exact passages, exact passage that we've been studying in the morning worship hour. And again, I believe that Obadiah lived at the same time as Elisha. And in 2 Chronicles 21... We, we read how the Philistines and the Arabians attacked Israel. It reads this, Second Chronicles 21, 16. says, Then the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabs who bordered the Ethiopians. And they came against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions found in the king's house together with his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. So this attack comes from the far south. We have the lower left corner of the map. Uh, the Arab peoples, it says, that border the Ethiopians. Ethiopia is in Africa, northern Africa. And it also came as a coordinated attack with the Philistines. So we have those three Philistine cities of Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. And they banded together to attack the kingdom of Judah. And as a result, even though, um, well, it destroys, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the royal family of Jehoram, as well as the Hebrew people living there, and, and they joined with these people living along the Mediterranean. And what that means, the reason I have the map here, is because that means in order to attack the purple on on just to the left side of the Dead Sea, they had to go through, or at least past, the land of Edom. 
The invading army either marched right by or right through Edom on their way to attack, and on their way from returning, carrying the spoils of war, carrying prisoners, they marched right back through the land of Edom. And as a result, even though the attack was led by the Ethiopians and led by the Philistines, who does God curse? The Edomites. Verse 10, verse 10 and 11 of Obadiah tell us what Edom did to merit this curse. God says here, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. It says here, Edom stood aloof. It's a Hebrew word, neged, and it means in front of or parallel to, in full sight of. King James says, you stood to the side of, as though you stood to the side of a door and allowed somebody to enter. Even though it's different ways of translating, it's the same idea of allowing something to take place in full view of you and yet doing nothing to intervene. I thought back a few years to a time when I was remodeling a part of the house and I had the walls ripped down to the studs and the ceiling was torn off and there was no electricity in this room and the floors were just wide planks and I was nailing down the subfloor and when you nail down subfloor you're, you're driving nails every, every six inches there's another nail and so I had one extension cord dragged into the room and a 100 watt light bulb plugged into it I had it laying on a windowsill so I could see what I was doing and Isaiah was just a little guy he was not old enough to be able to talk but he was old enough to be able to help, or thought he, thought he was helping. He was helping. And he would bring me nails. And he would bring a nail over, and I would say, thank you. And just to give you an idea of his age, one nail at a time, thank you. I'd hammer it in, bring me another one, thank you. And eventually he came to think that nails were called, he, he, in his language, he, he said, instead of thank you, he said, docu. And he came to think that nails from that point on were called docus. Uh, because every time he gave me a nail, I said, thank you. And so he would go, thank you, and he'd bring me nails. Um, it was dark, and he, he was drawn to the, to the light bulb that I placed on the windowsill. And I kept telling him, no, it's hot. No, it's hot. No, it's hot. And he kept going for it. And this one time, I was down on my knees hammering on the floor. I watched him going for the light bulb, and I thought, I've warned him several times. He's going to experience now what hot is. Well, <laughs> I watched him touch that 100-watt bulb, not realizing how hot they actually get. I'm a horrible dad. I know it. I felt horrible. And I watched his face just turn to from one of being pleasant and happy to one of absolute horror because he didn't even know to take his hand away from the source of the heat. 
And so he just stood there with his hand on that bulb. And I got there as fast as I could. But I felt so sick. Because you know why? I neged. I stood by, watched something terrible take place, and I did nothing to stop it. That's what Edom did. But not only did they stand by and watch and do nothing, but Obadiah says that they joined in the plunder. He says, you too were one of them. You see, their sense of superiority and their hatred of Israel, they not only did refuse to intervene, but the attackers, history tells us, the attackers cast lots for sections of Jerusalem. A part of Jerusalem was given to the Philistines. A part was given to, to this nation of Arab, the Arabs near Ethiopia. And a part was given to Edom. And they said, ransack it, plunder it, loot it, do whatever you want. It's yours. And so verse 11 says, you two were as one of them. You know, we see some horrible things going on in Ukraine right now. Um, Horrible atrocities committed by the Russian forces there. Citizens with cell phone cameras and houses and buildings with with uh, security cameras are, are catching the footage. We see it. We know it's happened. They can't deny it. There's ample proof of the war crimes that were and are still being committed in that part of the world. You know, there were no cameras in this day, but there were none needed to establish guilt because God saw all that was done. He saw it himself, and he calls them to account. He calls them out for their actions, and he names them one by one. He names one by one exactly what Edom had done, and he's not pleased at all. In fact, he's very angry. Verse 12 of this book begins a a series of several do-nots. It's a list of prohibitions. It almost seems like, it almost reads like the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not kill, do not... Do not lie, bear false witness. But that's not really how this section is constructed. It's more a series of urgent commands to stop. It's written in the present progressive tense. And so while verse 12 says, Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, it could also read, Stop gloating over your brother's day, over his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Stop rejoicing over their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Stop boasting about Israel's distress, is the way this reads. Do not enter the gates of my people, verse 13, in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth. Stop looting them, God says. Verse 14, and do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. History tells us that Edom, lying just to the south of Israel and south of Jerusalem, as the cities were being attacked and plundered, refugees fled, and having the Dead Sea to their, to their east, they, most of them fled to the south, to the mountain regions where they thought they would find safety where they thought they would find a friend. And what the Edomites did is they caught the survivors, they caught those that were trying to escape, did escape, 
They caught those who fled for safety. They captured them, and they sold them back to the attackers. They sold them back to the attackers from Philistia and from Ethiopia. And as these refugees fled and hid in the mountains and the, 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 the remote heights of Edom, as they ran to their relatives, they were captured and either slaughtered or sold. It's horrid. I, it, it's just horrid. You see, this is, this is not just sibling rivalry. This is, this is outright despicable. And the question is, why? Why would Edom act so wickedly? What would make them do this? I think the reason is given in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, pride is what led them to this. They didn't just live high above others in the mountains. They actually believed that they were higher than everybody else. They thought they were better. They they were higher than everyone else. Look at the language. It says, God says, the arrogance of your heart. You build high like the eagle. You set your nest among the stars who could bring me down? They were arrogant. They were prideful. They thought nothing could happen to them. They believed they were better than else, better than everyone else. And so look at verse 5. And let's look at God's judgment. He says here, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave you some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom? And understanding from the mountain of Esau, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Many years ago, it was Christmas Day of 1999. It was Trish and I, me and Trish's second Christmas together. We celebrated the day with family, and uh, we got home late at night. We came home and walked, the, you know, if you know our house, you walked into the porch first and the porch wraps around two sides of the house. We opened the first door, we came in, we opened the second door, went into the house. And after we were in the house, we heard the porch door slam shut again. And we went over to see who followed us home and we realized nobody followed us home. Somebody was caught between the porch door and the house door, trying to break into the house at the same time as we walked home. What a great time to steal, to rob. It was Christmas Day. People have things laid out, valuables. It was also the end of 1999 when people were afraid of Y2K and they were hoarding valuables. And uh, we came home apparently just in time. 
Thankfully, they didn't break into our house, but they did break into some neighboring homes, and they took some unusual items. Uh, they, took, they took Boyd's Bears and Longaberger baskets, and they stole some checks and then tried to use them, which got them caught. They were not very smart. And it turned out to be some teenage girls from Sealands Grove. You don't know that when somebody's trying to get into your house. It's scary. And... Um, my point in telling you this is thieves usually only take certain items. These girls took things that were of interest to them. But thieves will take that, things that are easy to sell, things that are of value, guns, jewelry, electronics, cash. Nobody breaks into a home and steals the appliances or, or takes the carpet. God tells Edom here that they will lose everything. He uses the word ransacked. And he says, even the hidden treasures will be searched out. Edomites were known for hiding their wealth in, in the rocks in which they lived. The rocky places. They would find little hidden caves and, and dig holes and cover them with rocks. And they were, they were known for hiding extreme wealth in the dirt. God says, it's all going to be found. And this judgment says you'll be left with nothing. And not only their possessions, but God's going to take their lives. He says they'll be deceived by the people they trusted. Those that they considered friends would betray them and lay traps to ambush them. And then the final judgment, I think, is even most terrifying. He says everyone will be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Again, it's a reference to these mountainous homes. It's terrifying. And it's awesome. So the question, I think, is, well, okay, so all this about Edom, what does it mean to me? And during the last two weeks, I've read Obadiah like I've never read it before. I've read it repeatedly. I've read it in different translations. I've read commentaries, and I've listened to sermons. I've talked to other pastors and preachers and asked their advice. Have you ever read Obadiah? Nope. And the question that I keep coming to is this. Why is God so harsh on these Edomites? The Philistines and these Ethiopians, they started it, right? And indeed, they did. Or perhaps the Babylonians, if you take that, that late, late date. So why so harsh on Edom? Didn't they just get caught up in something that they didn't start? I was out with a lawyer friend on Friday night, and I asked him, and I said, am I, am I right? And he, he agreed in my assessment. The legal term is complicit or complicity. It's where you're involved in a wrongdoing or illegal activity, even though you're not the one who's actually committing the act. You're aware of it, and so you're guilty of it. Uh, it's a charge that... that President Trump is laid at him. He, people will say that he is complicit in the Capitol riots. I'm not saying he is. I'm not saying he isn't. I'm just saying that's, that's the charge against him. That, that even though he wasn't present, he was accused of stirring up the riots. And he, when he, he was aware of it happening, he didn't do anything to, to stop it. And so he's charged with complicity. And I, I think that we catch a glimpse 
We see a glimpse into the heart of God here in this prophecy. And in a lot of ways, that's more important than the prophecy itself. You see, God is telling us, he's revealing to Edom their future, but more than that, he's revealing his own character. And eventually, whenever you hear me speak, I'll in some way or shape or fashion, I'll ask the question, well, so what? You know, so the Israelites were, were attacked. So what? So Edom didn't prevent or didn't come to Israel's aid. So God is going to judge the Edomites, harsher than he judges the instigator. So what does that all have to do with me? That's what I think I spent the most time pondering this, this past week. And my mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you turn there, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Here, Paul talks to the Corinthians, and he he says, he explains a lot of this, I think. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's referring here to the cloud that led the Israelites through the the wilderness, that, that pillar of cloud by day. And he says, they were all passed through the sea. When Moses parted the Red Sea and they went through it, they were all baptized to Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. I think a reference to the manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink when the water came from the rock. And they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as what? Examples. Now, these things happen as examples for who? For us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as what? Examples. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. See, the Old Testament gives us history for a reason. It's not just to fill our heads with trivia. It gives us examples of behaviors to avoid. It gives us examples of behaviors to follow. The Old Testament reveals how we're supposed to treat our our fellow man. The Old Testament reveals the holy character of God. And it reveals the sinfulness and the wickedness of the human heart. It, It reveals our inability to be righteous on our own. The Old Testament reveals how horribly wicked we are and our profound need for a savior. And so if you go back again to Obadiah, one of the lessons for us, I think, is found in verse 3, where Obadiah says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. The problem with the Edomites 
was one of pride. And that might not seem like a big deal. I mean, isn't pride just some minor sin? It's not like murder. It's not like theft. It's not like idolatry. I mean, isn't pride just kind of like a character flaw? We think of it that way. But in fact, no. Pride is a huge deal to a holy God. And there's a preponderance of warnings throughout Scripture regarding this sin of pride. Pride is, in fact, the very first sin. Pride says, I, I am most important. Pride's, pride is the focus on self, and it's, and it's a degrading of God. Pride is a form of idolatry. Pride replaces the power and preeminence of God with a belief in the power and preeminence of me. Pride is what caused Lucifer in heaven to, to rebel when he said in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve to take from that tree that God told them not to eat from and thus brought sin into the whole human race. And why did they do it? Because a serpent told them, in the day you eat from it, you will be like God. And they wanted that. Pride is what made Cain rise up and kill his brother Abel when God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Pride is what caused mankind to build a tower at Babel. Only a short time after the whole entire human race was destroyed by a flood, they wanted to build a tower that would reach to the heavens. In their pride, they wanted to be like God. Pride is what caused Moses to strike the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it as God told him. I think for a moment, just a fleeting moment, I think that he believed that the miraculous power that God gave him resided in himself. And God's judgment was swift. It was hard. Pride is what caused Samson to reveal the secret of his strength, his supernatural strength to Delilah, because he believed that his, his strength was actually his own. Pride is what caused David to sin when he numbered the people, believing that his, his security and his safety and his military might was in his numbers. Pride is what caused Solomon to spend seven years building a temple for the Lord, but 13 years building a house for himself. Pride is serious business. And God hates pride. When Solomon tells us seven sins that the Lord hates more than all others, pride is the first on the list. Proverbs 6, he calls it haughty eyes. In Proverbs 16, Solomon says, everyone who is arrogant in his own eyes is an abomination to the Lord. Wow. Those are harsh words. James in the New Testament says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And now I'm going to meddle just a little bit. 
because I would guess that you probably do not have to think very hard to name somebody that you would call proud. You probably don't have to think very hard to think of someone that you would say, oh, they're arrogant. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody that worships with you right here in this church. You can see the pride in their life, you can see the the trail of broken relationships, you can see the damage that it causes, and you can certainly see how offensive it is to you. But here's the danger. You can always see pride in others before you can see it in yourself. And if pride is something that you despise in others, be warned. Nobody can spot proud. Nobody can spot pride like the proud. And nobody hates pride in others like the one who is proud himself. The reason I think is pretty simple. Proud people want to be number one. And if you want to be number one, you're constantly looking, you're constantly scanning for somebody else who thinks that they're number one. And you have to show that you're number one. And so you're just wired to watch for proud people. And to be angry when you see them because here is a rival. I have to show that I'm better. I've heard it said, it's not a matter of if pride exists in your life. It's a matter of where it is. But I think there's another lesson for us here. There's another way in which the character of God is revealed. And I think we see a little bit of how God views family relationships here. You see, his judgment on Edom is so great. It's so much harsher than that against Babylon or against the Philistines. Why? Because Edom is Israel's brother. Why do I say that? Well, look at the language used here in Obadiah. You see, beginning in verse 10, God stops calling, God stops using the the word Israel, to describe his people. Before this, he calls them my people, or Jerusalem, or Israel. But in verse 10, he begins to call them what? Jacob. He calls them Jacob. He uses his personal name. And he, does, he no longer refers to Edom as the Edomites, but instead, from here on in this book, God calls them Esau. This is like when your mother uses your full name. When mom said, Nathan Charles Clark, you you knew. You better pay attention. And he's pointing out that you're brothers. And he continues this reminder through the rest of the prophecy. Listen, guys, God hates it when families fight. And it's it's only natural that conflict erupts among those that we're closest to. I think that's why God gives us so much instruction on on how families should interact with one another. Um, When we defy these commands, turmoil erupts. For husbands and wives, the Bible gives very specific instructions. Husbands are to love their wives the way they love their own bodies. Wives are to respect the leadership position of their husbands. Children are to obey their parents in what? In, In the Lord, but in everything. Um, Parents are to bring their children up in in the Lord. Grandparents 
Proverbs 17, if you're taking notes, Proverbs 17.6 says grandparents are to share their wisdom with their grandchildren. Lots of instructions on how families should interact and work together. And when families align their home and practices with Scripture, the occasion of family, diminished, family conflicts, they're not eliminated, but they're, they're diminished. So if you have a, fam- a conflict with a member of your family, I, I'd say resolve it now. God hates it when families fight. But I don't think, I do not believe it's a stretch to say that God hates it even more when brothers and sisters in the Lord fight. See, God compares his church to a family. And so, just as the rules on Family relationships, I think they can also apply to the, to the way brothers and sisters in Christ can interact. Every child of God is told to respond to other Christians and consider them brothers and sisters. Romans 12, Romans 12.10, you don't have to turn there, but Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. 1 Peter 3 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. The church is told to avoid discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, and slander and gossip, disorder, backbiting, just like families. James 4.11 says, Brothers... He refers to the people in the church as brothers. Brothers, do not slander one another. And not only are we a family, but God also refers to brothers and sisters in Christ as, he refers to the church as his body. In a, I counted at least 12 separate New Testament passages. Don't quote me on this. There may be, I may be off a little bit. I just tried to count them quickly. But at least 12 separate New Testament passages where believers in Christ are called the body, the body of Christ. Paul talks about how a body has to work together. Each individual part is essential for the proper functioning of the body. There's no room for boasting or bragging about which part of the body you are. When one, one part of the body hurts, the whole, part of, the whole body hurts. Um, I'm... Still working on that barn at my house, and I'm driving lots of little trim coil nails. They're little tiny things, and they're, they're thin, and you're on a ladder, and I'm pounding them in, and I've hit my thumb more times in the last week than I care to count. And it's just a thumb, but the whole body reacts when you hit your thumb with a hammer. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 12 to wrap this up. Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. And I want us to notice how Romans 12 blends these dual concepts of family or being a part of the body of Christ with the warnings against pride. Romans 12, I want to start at verse 3. And it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. What's that called? What? It's called pride. 
but to think as to have sound judgment or soberly, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, who is he talking to here? He's talking to the church. What's he talking about? How the body interacts with the body. That's important. Because in his discussion on how brothers and sisters relate to one another in the Lord, he warns them, first of all, about pride. Verse 6. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9 is a series of just short, staccato-like commands. Love unhypocritically. Abhor evil. Cling to the good. Be devoted to who? One another. Be devoted to one another in, here's that word again, brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That means try to outdo one another in the way, the respect that you show each other. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Wait. We're talking about who here? What relationships are we talking about? Within the the body? You mean there's going to be persecution from within the body? Absolutely. And if you haven't experienced that yet, you must not have been a Christian very long. Because the sad reality is, Brothers and sisters backbite and gossip and slander a lot. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Yes, your brothers, I'm adding. Bless them and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Here it is again. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So there we have it. The prophecy of Obadiah, and what I take away from it is pride is deadly. And God wants us especially brothers and sisters in the Lord, brothers and sisters in family, to work together, love one another in brotherly love. Oh, that we would do that.